is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's a new episode. It's February 27th. As I promised last week, there would be an update in the K-Flock Kevin Perez uh, litigation case. It was a state case last week when I did a podcast, and today it's now a federal, potentially a death penalty case. But I'm going to get into that in a bit later in the podcast, but uh, I'll give you everything that I know up to this point, or at least as much as I can divulge. Now, this was a pretty tough week, I would say, a Thursday in particular, which I'm going to explain. And it'll give you an idea of what a day in the life of a criminal attorney can be. But first, I want to give you an update on last week's podcast subject. Senator John Fetterman from the great state of Pennsylvania, still lying in a dark room inside a Walter Reed Medical Center hospital for severe depression. Not a peep of an update for this pathetic, really pathetic figure who allowed himself to be used by the vultures in his own party. And and worst of all, he allowed himself to be used by his wife, Giselle, who went from being an illegal alien to becoming a United States senator when she fills his seat, which will be at some point soon. Now, I don't expect to hear any real updates on Fetterman, any real ones for a while, because there's really no point for the Democrats to bother with Fetterman anymore. He served his purpose. His carcass was dragged across the finish line. They got their all-important 51st vote in the Senate, and now he's collateral damage. So there's no need to even pretend that he matters anymore. There's no need for the media and for his uh, his supporters and his campaign to lie about the amount of damage that the stroke did. They don't have to lie anymore that he could potentially be president someday. They have the seat. That's all that they want. The fact that he's lying in a hospital bed in the dark, completely uncommunicative, and who knows, this could be forever, it means nothing to them. It's time to move on. This is a war to them, and Fetterman is just collateral damage. And now the only updates on the Fetterman debacle that are coming out are from Giselle, the self-proclaimed hero who noticed, according to her, the tiniest droop in the corner of Fetterman's mouth last May. And like the incredibly devoted wife that she is, she overcame his resistance and she rushed him to the hospital where his life was saved even if the stroke completely destroyed him mentally. We've heard this story so many times from her that she actually said that she saved his life. I don't believe any of it. I don't believe that there was a droop in the corner of his mouth that she noticed. I don't, and I just don't buy it. It's just not real because everything about her is fabricated and is designed for one purpose only to make her into a United States Senator. It's all self-promotion. And she's simply just too much of an opportunistic liar to be believed. And as I said, if she cared about him so much, so much that she saved his life and she overcame his resistance on going to a hospital, how did she allow him to go five years without taking the heart medication that he was prescribed after learning that he had a diseased heart pump? Did she allow him to ignore every bit of the heart doctor's advice? to change his eating, to change his lifestyle, to take his medication. She couldn't even get him to come back to see the doctor at all in five years. 
for some reason, she's never explained why she allowed all of that to happen, but she keeps telling us how she overcame his resistance to going to the hospital after his stroke last year. It just doesn't ring true. It's obviously a lie. It's obviously an effort to make her appear, well, heroic for a reason. So the updates that we've received, of course, are just from Giselle, and naturally they had nothing to do with her husband, how he's faring. You'd think that as a United States senator who's sitting in a dark room in a mental hospital, unable to speak or hear, maybe we should get some updates? No. She doesn't mention him at all. She just spoke glowingly about how great a mother she is, and as I said, she ignored the collateral damage, the lump of ruined shit that's laying in the hospital bed. Why? Why? Because she's campaigning. We already knew that before he checked himself in, when it has been uh, was revealed that he was suffering some, from severe depression. They hid that, of course, from the, uh, from the people that were going to be voting. They didn't want anybody to know about that. But look at her completely harebrained Twitter account. During the time he was falling into this dark abyss, this depression, she's posting pictures of her training to be a volunteer fireman. She's got pictures of her equipment. She's got pictures of her nails being worn down to the nub as if she's actually doing something. Now, every picture she posts is about her in this you know, journey to become a volunteer fireman. It's all about talking herself up. She's saving kittens on the roof, and she shows a picture of a kitten on the roof. She's honorary chairman of this, of that. She's traveling to New York. You know what there are no pictures of? Fetterman, the human squash. Now, here is her latest update. I'm going to read this to you. Keep in mind that her husband, again, is in a dark hospital room by himself, by himself, Due to either the severe depression or the complications from the stroke, he can't speak or even hear. Here is the first tweet from Friday, just last Friday. Quote, one week ago today when the news dropped, the kids were off from school and media trucks circled our home. I did the first thing I could think of, park them in the car and drive. That's what she said on Friday. Think about how utterly sick this is. A week ago, the man goes into the psych ward of a hospital, deeply depressed, Quote, I did the first thing I could think of, pack them in the car and drive out of the country. Quote, I am not really sure how to navigate this journey, but I'm figuring it out slowly. (laughs) We think you got it figured out pretty good, Giselle. Next one. Pro tip. Always have passports ready just in case you have to run away. That's what she tweeted. Run away from what? From your husband? who you didn't even care for when you knew he had a diseased heart and now he's alone? You're running away from him? But there's more. Quote, we drove straight into Canada and lovely Buffalo, New York. That's a fucking lie. We talked about lots of hard things and how we will all have to face hard things about the need to be gentle with all and with ourselves. Listen, first of all, a drive to Canada during the winter with her kids? All those hours from Pennsylvania driving alone through snow to Canada by herself while her husband is unable to communicate in a hospital bed? He's not there with a broken leg. She abandoned him and she took his kids. Don't you think that they would presumably make him feel better, his children? Who does this? And who speaks like this to children? Nobody speaks to children like that. The need to be gentle? With ourselves, more self-love, must have self-love. You know the essential oils are coming next. 
Whoever talks about self-love to children, no one does. Quote, we did some scary things, but we did them together. We ziplined over Niagara Falls, and August, that's one of her kids, got stuck. We talked about flexibility and the need to always have an open heart and open mind. Again, who speaks like this to children? An open heart and open mind? How about taking care of your poor husband who can't go on these trips? He's all alone, and she's ziplining with her kids. She's taking a vacation. Well, this guy is alone in the hospital, depressed. The funniest thing about her, maybe the only thing, is that she's such an egomaniac that she doesn't appreciate how bad this all looks. Or more accurately, she probably does appreciate it, but she doesn't care. She's campaigning. She's got her eye on the prize, and she doesn't care what people think. Quote, we also talked about how joy and fun can and must still exist, even when someone we love is in pain. And tomorrow, who knows? We try all over again? Question mark? Question mark? Oi, someone they love is in pain. Maybe you stay by his side for a bit? You weren't by his side when he had a diseased heart. You dropped the ball on that one. You didn't make him take any medication. You weren't by his side when you forced him to campaign for the Senate after a stroke, which now has been stated by his own staff that he suffered permanent damage from, from campaigning. He was then spiraling into deep depression and you were learning how to be a volunteer fireman and posting shit on Twitter nonstop while she was training, while she was in her gear, supposedly working to become a volunteer fireman, while she claimed to be rescuing a cat on a roof, she had her cell phone out taking pictures? You think that's allowed? Or do you think this whole thing is a publicity stunt? Tell me what happens if you're a volunteer fireman, you're getting trained, and you whip out your fucking phone to take pictures. You think you're going to last? Jesus. She couldn't have been with the man instead, Fetterman, instead of this social media fireman crap? Who the fuck needs her to be a volunteer fireman? She came to this country with nothing. Fetterman is an oaf who had no income, but his father paid them $54,000 a year as an allowance for years. She was, they were given a free house to live in. You can't show the man some gratitude, some care, maybe sacrifice your personal public life for the guy who you destroyed. And, and all these tweets that she posted on Friday, they're so tone deaf. She was sure to remove the ability for any Twitter member to respond. Okay, you can do that. It's a setting. You can make it so that the public cannot respond. Only the people that you carefully select to follow can respond. And because she knew that the responses were going to be vile about her. She knew it. Exactly what I said is what would have been coming from the public. So she made sure that all the responses on these insane tone-deaf tweets are all from carefully selected people who all said positive things all positive it's all fake though it wants to give she wants to give the appearance that everybody is for her that they're not against her they're not criticizing her for what she did to that lump of shit in that bed and this is what liberals do she learned this well she's changing the narrative she's changing the perception of what she did it's like with joe biden he's completely destroyed the country well, because they did so well in the midterms, people are thinking, well, maybe people aren't really sick of Joe Biden and the Democrats, but they are. All the polls showed it. 
but somehow the elections came out differently. It's the same thing with her Twitter, her tweets. Everybody's saying positive things when she's the most ghastly person in the world. So she wants people to think that she's popular and supported. It's fake. It's not true. Now, I received a ton of email after last week's podcast about Giselle Barreto Fetterman. Every one of them was positive and appreciated my position, which was really not political. It really wasn't political. Like, I could give a fuck if it's a Democrat or Republican. I can't stand either party. They're both disgusting to me. The Democrats are more disgusting, however. All I did was just hate this crazy wife of of Fetterman's, who's clearly an opportunistic fraud. But I received one hilariously unhinged email from Samyenta. I have to read some of it. It's too funny to keep to myself. And I debated whether to read it. But it's just too good that you need, kind listeners, you need to hear this. Her anger was not at all about my treatment of Giselle Fetterman. It was about my treatment of essential oils. I mean, this woman got so worked up, like foaming at the mouth, eyes bulging, tongue hanging out. Lady, it was a joke. I I really didn't know what essential oils were last week, okay? I just knew that they're not essential. They're not essential. I don't have them. So how could they be essential? Just calm down. Okay, now I'm going to read some of it. I'm going to break it down for you. Now, a lot of this is in all caps. It was an email, remember. So you're going to have to turn down the volume a little bit when I'm talking. I'm not going to use her real name, even though she was dumb enough to put her real name in the email. And I wish it was because she was brave in using her real name. No, she just, she just was so angry that she just filled it out, not thinking that I could read her name uh, in this podcast, but I won't. It's not fair. Okay, here it goes. It starts. On behalf of myself and all the ladies across America who have a small business in essential oils, which is a billion-dollar industry, that's all caps. Okay, first of all, your small business is no doubt losing money and is an utter waste of time. It's something that you do to pretend you have a job instead of actually working. I know this is hard to hear, but it's true. Yes, I do believe that essential oils are a billion-dollar industry because of imbeciles like you. Next line. Your disgusting, all caps, comments and, all caps, entire misogynist podcast are so, all caps, gross that you make Tucker Carlson look human. Now, lady, just, whoa, just reel it in a little bit. First of all, I've never watched Tucker Carlson in my life. He's that guy uh, with the bow tie who looks like little Lord Fauntleroy. Is he that bad? Is he worse? He's not as bad as me. I mean, I make him look human? I'm making fun of essential oils isn't really that bad, is it? You need to respond with all caps? Okay, but it was a, a a nice attempt at a joke by referring to me of making uh, Tucker Carlson seem human. So I'm going to give her a point there, even if it was a, a C-minus joke. Listen, the fact that she attempted what I think was humor, it's got to be the first time in her life. She actually, I mean, I didn't laugh, so I can't say it was the first time she made a man laugh. But of course, I have to ask, if it's so disgusting to listen to me, why are you listening to me? Is your life that meaningless? Are you a masochist? You could be spending this time selling more of that snake oil, rushing to the post office with your packages, pretending you're busy, or or just getting drunk in the afternoon again. I mean, you don't have to be writing to me. Next part. I've commented on a lot, all caps, of really all caps, nasty podcasts before. I have you banned in my home, all caps, 
But the fact that women still have to share this country with men like you is unbearable, all caps. Okay, there's a lots to unpack here. I have a degree in psychology. I'm going to finally, finally use it. You've commented on a lot, all caps, of really nasty, all caps, podcasts before? Why are you commenting on podcasts? Lady, live and let live. We don't have to agree on everything. But you're, you're such a top listener of mine and you hate my guts? You wrote your email to me just a few hours after the podcast dropped which means you have my podcast saved. You get alerts for it. You can't wait to listen to it. And you're commenting on a lot, all caps, of nasty podcasts. Do you really have nothing better to do? I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you, you know, man to whatever the fuck it is you are. Who comments about podcasts? You're an adult. It's just a podcast. You don't have to be a lent, a yenta know-it-all about everything. You don't have to tell everybody what you think. For the most part, people don't care. You, you must have figured this out by now. And you don't have me banned in your home. You listen to me and you're listening now in your home. So that was a lie. And if you actually have to decide, you get to decide for other people in your house that they can't listen to me. Well, that tells me a few things. You're a rigid, small-minded pain in the ass. And when you listened to me last week, you were surely alone in your house. You had to be. You had to be. And I have no doubt that you don't have a husband because no sane man will listen to a woman who tells them what they're allowed or not allowed to listen to. Do you hear yourself? You have me banned? Which means all the people who used to live in your house are fans of mine. To them, I say thank you and congratulations for getting the fuck out of that house. Jesus. Next part. If anyone, all caps, needs essential oils, it's you, all caps. This rest of this is all caps. Look into it. Maybe it will help you do better and realize women are just as valuable as men. It's 2023. Get over it. First of all, I think women are valuable, just not greedy leeches like Giselle Fetterman and you. And this is the best part. This is the big finish into this Mwah! chef's kiss. I thank you for this crazy lady, crazy cat lady. And finally, the email ends with these two hashtags. I shit you not. Hashtag be better. Hashtag do better. And the do is all caps. And I, I got to be honest with you. I was just rolling on the ground about this. This woman is so used to social media as her only form of written communication that she's now using hashtags in an email. I'm going to remind the audience the hashtag symbol. It's used uh, for people to locate posts in social media relating to a specific topic or theme. It's an easy way to find them. Like if you want to find tweets or posts about Tucker Carlson, you do a search for, for hashtag Tucker Carlson, all one word. And all the posts in Twitter and Instagram, because that's really the only place they're used, all those posts that are mentioning Tucker Carlson are set aside for you. There's no bloody reason at all to use the, uh, hashtags in an email. No one's going to be doing a search on my inbox for mentions of Tucker Carlson or do better and be better. And even if someone was the hashtag, it doesn't work in an email inbox. The fuck is wrong with you? <sighs> okay. So I, I, I try to think of both sides of every situation. I'm a defense lawyer. If I just thought of, if I only cared about what I thought, I'd lose every case. It's very important for me to think of what my enemy, what my opponent is thinking. 
So I, as I admitted before, I don't really know what essential oils are. I don't. So I decided, you know what, for this podcast, I'm going to take a shot to be fair to this harpy who dances in her kitchen and takes pictures of herself for the gram. It's only right. If she can listen to me every week, lady, I can try essential oils. So if you could believe I went, now I know I ordered them from the wrong place. I just went online and I didn't know what I'm doing. So lady, if you want to give me some advice on the right essential oils, I just ordered them. I mean, they weren't expensive. I ordered two kinds and I got them on Wednesday. And this was before I had a very stressful Thursday. Here's the first one. Peppermint essential oil. The advertising says it's known to alleviate mental fatigue and boost energy and alertness. Diffuse peppermint to uplift the mood. I don't even know what that means. Diffuse. Easing tension and overwhelming emotions. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so overwhelmed. I just, I just need essential oils. Apply peppermint to the skin with a carrier oil. I don't know what that means. To relieve headaches and tension. Well, I, I don't have any headaches, but I got a lot of tension. As I said, I don't know what a carrier oil is, so I just sniffed it. And I, I rubbed it on my hands and face. I hope I did that right. But I did it. I don't even know how to use it. It doesn't, didn't say on the bottle. So I just, I rubbed it all over. I just, whatever. I also tried rosemary essential oil. It has many uses, according to the advertising, through diffusion. And would somebody tell me what diffusion? I, I know what the word means. But how do you diffuse this shit? Through diffusion, the energizing oil may help reduce mental and emotional exhaustion while stimulating focus and improving mental clarity. Add a few drops of rosemary essential oil to any DIY, that means do-it-yourself, cleaning solution. Add rosemary oil to your shampoo for a great hair tonic. Woo! So I put it in my hair when I took a shower for like two days. I put it in my hair. I didn't know how much to use. So I just dumped like half the bottle in my head with the shampoo. So I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on the essential oils. And here is the craziest thing. And listen, dear listeners, I try to tell you what's on my my mind, and I try to be open and honest. I'm stunned what I'm about to say. The stuff actually smells pretty good. And I did feel more relaxed, like almost instantly, just sniffing it. It was all over me. And my God, I put so much on. I even carried some with me in my briefcase, and I used it before and after I had the sentencing in Warsaw, New York, or this really ugly case, which I'm going to explain about in a bit. And I felt great. My mind was clear. I had some aches and pains. My lower back hurts a little bit. It felt better. And I realized, I mean, this is incredible, that maybe this oil is essential after all. Okay, that was just complete and utter bullshit. These oils are fucking Spanish fly. They're water with some stinky smell to it. They're only essential if you're running a Ponzi scheme with other lazy housewives who can't or won't get a damn job. And if the oils make you so calm, lady, why are you flipping out about my podcast every week? You're so uncalm and you're so uptight that you need to be medicated. Okay, one more quick topic in the news before we get to the legal segment. That toxic chemical train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Like 38 trains derailed spilling this toxic chemicals, this uh, vinyl chloride, which is poisonous, into the air. Then there was a controlled explosion of some of the remaining cars, which released some more chemicals into the air. 
This is a small town near the Ohio border, Ohio-Pennsylvania uh, border, and it's been in- ignored by the government for the most part. I understand there's only 4,700 people there, but the idea that these chemicals are restricted to just that area is really just offensive. And the idea that the government is stating that everyone is safe is offensive and just a joke. Residents are complaining about breathing issues, eye issues, and other illnesses. Officials are estimating that 43,000 different types of marine animals were killed after the derailment within a five-mile zone of East Palestine. And you can see the pictures. There's dead fish all over the place. You can't tell me that this stuff is safe. It's not. It's 22 days later, and the place just stinks. Somehow, Joe Biden hasn't visited the place and shown any real support for the area. It's just astonishing. I mean, he is an American. He's the American leader, the president, whether you like him or hate him. Instead, he managed to go all the way to the Ukraine and give them more money. We're giving over $113 billion to this country, and the war with Russia is a year old with no end in sight. All the Democrats are crying about the aid that we give to Israel, an ally. Well, we're giving 30 years of aid to Israel, to the Ukraine, in one year. Somehow the Democrats have no problem with this at all. And of course, not to be outdone, the far right, the QAnon Republicans, some of the MAGA morons are claiming that in social media that the Zionists, that's Israel, that's the Jews, did this to East Palestine, Ohio. Why? Because they hate all the Palestines. These are people that are saying this with a straight face. These people live in America with you. Residents of Palestine, Texas, by the way, should hide under their bed as the Mossad is clearly coming after you soon. Now, as I said, Joe Biden had no interest in going there, which I just find this completely bizarre. At least make it appear that you care. For some reason, he doesn't even care if he's popular. It's almost like he knows he's going to win the election no matter how bad his polling is. He just doesn't care. Even Trump, who misses every opportunity to not screw something up, he managed to get there. And of course, naturally, it was all about him as he brought Trump-branded water, like all these cases of Trump-branded water that surely his moronic campaign that contributors paid for. Biden eventually sent the uh, miniature transportation secretary, Pete Buddy Gug, and he was there and he spent a few minutes pretending to care. He wore this little Bob the Builder outfit. It was so cute. It might actually have been a, a kid's Halloween costume. It was so tiny. Then he hightailed it out of there and he was seen yawning and sleeping on the flight back. I mean, it's hard work having to wake up and spend, you know, 40, 45 minutes working a day. Mayor Pete, of course, made light of the derailment. He's claiming, uh, you know, that there's a thousand train derailments a year. So this is no biggie. I can tell you this. Mayor Pete, that dude is one angry guy. He's snapping at reporters, demanding personal time with his husband. The guy never fucking leaves his house. How much personal time can you want? And residents of East Palestine, Ohio, are coughing up blood in their lungs. So if the disaster of the handling of the East Palestine train derailment wasn't enough, the Chinese spy balloon that traveled across our entire country 
which seemed to be no concern at all to Biden, the bankrupting of America via blank check to the Ukraine, the open borders of the, uh, at the southern and now the northern borders as well, the wildly increasing violent crime rates in the big cities, the lax law enforcement in these big cities due to woke DAs, the runaway inflation, the runaway interest rates, the upcoming recession, the supply chain issues which have not ended, the wokeness in our military and in our schools, all they seem to care about is the diversity and transgender rights, not competence, the abuse we're taking from China, Iran, Russia. Well, Trump and Ron DeSantis, the two leading candidates for the Republican nomination for president next year, they're up anywhere from one to three points on Joe Biden now. That's it. Yes, that's it. One to three points in polls last week which means with mail-ins, with early voting, the Democrats will again win the 2024 election and finish off what's left in this country, which is why I'm sick and tired of talking about current affairs. It's a waste of time. People are really dumb here, so impossibly dumb that I can't help but conclude that the early voting and mail-ins contain enough fraud to win elections because how else could this country ever support the Democrats right now? especially after what's occurred, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, and especially what happened with the midterms. Everybody hates the Democrats, yet they keep winning. I just wonder how. No one could be this dumb to want four more years of Biden and the Democrats. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break and come back and talk to you about Kay Flock, the rapper, and uh, a very interesting Thursday I had. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond a Legal Limit. This past week, a client of mine, Kevin Perez, a 19-year-old drill rapper known as Kay Flock, was indicted in New York federal court on charges of racketeering conspiracy, a violent crime in aid of racketeering, attempted murder, and some gun charges. Now, Kevin has been under indictment for nearly, actually over a year in New York on state charges. And the case was being heard in a building just a couple away from the federal courthouse where he's charged now. In that case, this was the state case, he was charged with just a murder, which occurred in, not just a murder, but only one murder, which occurred in December of 2021, and a related gun charge. In the new federal indictment a year later, he's charged with the same murder and an attempted murder, which was a shooting that allegedly occurred prior, a couple of weeks prior to the murder uh, allegedly in 2021 in December. Now, in human terms, I'm going to try to talk to you like a human being instead of a lawyer. He's charged with being part of a gang which used violence to further its illegal goals. Now he's charged with multiple defendants. And of the 11 counts in the case, in the new federal case, he's only charged with any other defendant in just three of them. And one of them is the catch-all RICO conspiracy charge. In this way, the government can create prejudice against Kevin before the jury by presenting evidence of criminal acts committed by other defendants charged in the case, but not charged against Kevin. And surely the point of this, I assure you, is to get the jury to think, well, if he's hanging out with these bad dudes who did all these other criminal acts, he must be guilty because, you know, if they're guilty, he's guilty. More crime, throw it up against the wall, it works. It's a prejudicial spillover of all the bad acts allegedly committed by the other defendants against him. And that's the first thing that makes the federal case different than the state murder case. Uh, 
In addition, because it's a RICO conspiracy case, the government can now try to bring in criminal acts pretty much of, of any of the defendants as proof of the criminal enterprise. More bad acts, more prejudice against Kevin Perez. Finally, the murder charge against Kevin makes this case death penalty eligible. Under federal law, only the U.S. attorney in Washington decides if a death penalty will be sought on a case. The U.S. attorneys in New York have to go up the ladder of command to get approval to seek the death penalty. As I said, it's only death eligible now. The prosecution is required to give the defense a list of aggravating factors that outlines all the reasons why they think the case should be a death penalty case. We can then put in our own submission showing mitigating reasons why it should not be. In my mind, there is a 0% chance that this will be a death penalty case based on the, the murder charge. That's the one that triggered this, the murder charge against Kevin. And I'm going to explain why. Remember, this murder charge, uh, we've been saying for a year now, is clearly self-defense when viewed on the security video cameras the film that recorded the entire thing on the street that day in December of 21. Kevin is seen walking up Amsterdam Avenue by 151st Street with another person, walking very nonchalantly. Suddenly, some gangbanger who is looking out of the door of a barber shop recognizes Kevin walking by and rushes out of the door and says something aggressive to Kevin. Kevin is seen waving him off, you know, very nonchalantly again, continuing to walk up Amsterdam. Basically, I want nothing to do with this. I'm going to just ignore you and keep going. At that point, the gangbanger gets more aggressive. And you can find this on the internet. You know, there's a bunch of tapes. Look for it. You can find it. When the gangbanger gets waved off, he gets more aggressive. He's walking up the street towards Kevin. Kevin's got his back turned. He's got his hands in his pockets, and he's clearly angry. And his hands in the pockets as he's walking makes clear to anybody who lives in that neighborhood that that man's got a gun in his pocket. Kevin is just a few feet ahead of him with nowhere to run because he can't outrun a speeding bullet. He turns around, recognizing he's about to be shot, and in self-defense, he shoots the gangbanger. When the gangbanger, who has a violent criminal history a mile long, is loaded onto the gurney by EMS, a loaded gun falls out of his jacket pocket, where his hands were, with one bullet in the chamber ready to shoot and kill. And you think that that charge will justify a death penalty case? No chance. It won't even get a conviction in this case. Now, I don't know the rest of the evidence for the other charges in the federal case, um, the other allegations of violence, because we were only dealing with the state case previously, and I've only seen that evidence. So I don't want to talk on what I don't know. One positive, though, is that in the state case, Kevin was alleged with gun possession along with the murder charge, and that carried a potential 15-year maximum sentence. So even if he was acquitted of the murder in the state case, he very well could have been convicted of the 15-year maximum gun charge because he's allegedly, or I'm admitting, he used the gun. In the federal case, while there's a gun charge connected with the murder charge as well, his use of the gun where we claim was self-defense, he can't be found guilty of the gun charge if he's acquitted of the murder, which means we don't expect a gun conviction in the federal case either on that murder charge. Finally, I expect the state to drop their murder case against Kevin because the feds picked up that murder with their new indictment. 
Now, Kevin, you don't know him. Some of you might if you're listening. He's an incredibly talented artist with a huge future ahead of him. Now, I am not a, a rap expert. I'm an expert in other areas of music, or at least I consider myself to be. Okay, I'm pretty good with other music. I've discussed Kevin with other hip-hop artists that I represent, and they all said the same thing, that this kid was about to be huge when he was arrested 14 months ago. Huge. He had a huge future ahead of him and was wildly talented. And this is incredibly frustrating for him, as you can imagine, to waste a year sitting on Rikers Island for a case that will end up getting dropped. Rikers is a horrible place, the worst prison I've ever been to. And he was just 18 when he got there. That being said, He's a very positive kid. He's never expressed anything but confidence in beating the charges, and he's been a very easy client to represent. I don't always feel that way about every client that I have, but this kid is as good as it gets. He's quiet. He's polite. He's respectful. I like him. What can I say? I like him. He's also got a great mother who has been very solid with him, me. She's responsive. Doesn't always happen from kids that have difficult upbringings. They don't always have mothers that are so dedicated and so on top of things. This one is. And I should add, people don't hire me for cases for a plea. People don't hire me for cases because they want a, a mail-it-in defense that most lawyers do. People hire me because they know that I've had these incredibly difficult cases these incredibly brutal cases for a defendant because there's so much evidence or society wants a conviction. And I've won them. And Kevin is someone I like a lot. And that helps. I don't want you to think for a second that it doesn't help. Uh, sometimes the defendants aren't so likable. I still fight just as hard. But when it's somebody that I care about, a young kid like Kevin and his mother, I can tell you this, if they're going to get a conviction, they're going to have to work for it very hard because this will be a fight to the death, I promise. Now, if I can get back to my Thursday from last week, and this involves K-Flock as well. I woke up at 7 a.m. on Thursday to catch an 11 a.m. flight to Buffalo for a sentencing in Warsaw, New York. That's about an hour drive from Buffalo. And I knew it was supposed to snow that day in Buffalo. And I'm obviously dreading that trip, as you can guess. Uh, this case was, as I said, a sentencing for a client who was convicted of shooting his six-week pregnant girlfriend in the stomach, killing the fetus or, or whatever it is at six weeks, I guess. Is it called the fetus at six weeks? I'm not sure. And also wounding the mother significantly. And, and all of this occurred in front of the victim's four-year-old son and my client's mother. Just horrible. The defendant had a prior conviction for driving his car into a crowd, hurting some people. He was on parole when the shooting occurred. He had just been released from prison a few months earlier. On the 911 tape before the shooting had occurred, my client, who was incredibly drunk, was heard screaming that if she didn't kill the baby, he was going to rip it out. It was just horrible, horrible, chilling stuff. He was alleged to have pistol whipped his girlfriend before she was shot, threw his mother down and abused the four-year-old boy pretty badly. It was just the worst, horrible, saddest case. And to top it all off, it was in upstate New York, which is a very conservative area, as you can imagine, and they just were not having any of it. This isn't New York City, where once in Queens, I got a seven-year sentence for a man who smothered to death his eight-month pregnant wife. 
The judge in this case in Warsaw, New York, was no-nonsense, very conservative, and he clearly had no interest in doing anything but, but crushing my client. He had made it very clear in prior appearances uh, that you know he was going to do everything he could to put him away for as long as possible. This was going to be a brutal day, and I didn't expect him to want to hear any of my excuses. Now, you're wondering, I'm sure, like, what is wrong with you? How do you represent somebody like this? I'll say this. You can't do this kind of work if this stuff bothers you. I like the guy. I like him a lot. He's 30 years old, and he's an, uh, an alcoholic, and he's a drug addict. And every time he's drunk or on drugs, he's impossible. He's difficult. He's a completely different guy when he's sober. He's quiet, and he's thoughtful, for real. He's smart. And as I've said before, I don't judge clients based on what they're alleged to have done. I judge them based on how they treat me. And to me, he was always kind. He was polite. And I found this whole thing just so sad and just viewed it as such a waste of life because of an addiction. It's just sad. I mean, that we have these things, drugs and alcohol, and people get their lives destroyed over it. It's just, it's, I find it to be tragic. Drugs and alcohol make people do really bad things. And addiction is frustrating for everyone around the addict. The system doesn't always have a lot of empathy because they don't consider it to be any kind of disease. And I understand why, because innocent people are being hurt. But we did all that we could to help this young guy. We put in a huge sentencing memorandum and even a huge pre-plea submission, which included letters from friends and family that showed that he was a decent person when he's sober, from school to show that he deserved some mercy, that he was salvageable. What surprised me at sentencing was when the judge said that defense lawyers never put in such a sentencing submission by in Warsaw, New York. And to me, that's really bizarre and pathetic. I mean, it's still someone's life that you're handling as a defense lawyer. And if you're going to do it, you know, do it right. But as I said, we had a major uphill battle getting the prosecutors to agree to come off the maximum, which could have been like 40-something years, was no easy feat. The case had no defense as I saw it. We had no leverage. Anyway, I, I looked at my phone back to Thursday morning. I looked at my phone at 7 a.m., already dreading the day, and saw that there were 12 missed phone calls. And my stomach fell when I saw that it was all from Kevin Perez's mother. I called her back, and I was afraid for the worst that, God forbid, something bad had happened to him in Rikers and learned instead that Kevin had been picked up by the feds from Rikers, which can only mean one thing that he had a, a new federal case. Like a state murder case wasn't bad enough, now he's got to deal with a uh, federal prosecution. And this is now like 7 o'clock. It's not like I could call the federal prosecutors up and find out what's up. I didn't even know who the prosecutor was in the case. I hadn't even seen the indictment. It wasn't online anywhere. I didn't even know who to call. And I knew that there was going to be an appearance, an initial appearance later in the day in court which was problematic as I was taking one lawyer from my office with me to Buffalo and the other was on vacation in Colorado. Oy. So I got in the car and I tried to make some calls, but it was just too early. By the time I got to the airport by the gate, I got in touch with the state prosecutor who in fact confirmed that there was a new federal indictment and he gave me the contact information to the federal prosecutor, which helped. And as I sat, sat there by the gate, the prosecutor told me, the federal prosecutor, what the charges were against Kevin and that the case was death penalty eligible. And I was frankly stunned. Again, gang members, you know, come on, this isn't the, some innocent person that was killed. 
as I got off the phone, I had to scramble to find somebody to cover that initial appearance for Kevin. The only person I really could have used was Mark Furnish. He's a, a friend and an attorney. I do a lot of work with in New York. He did the Gotti trial with me and way back in 2005, and I referred the Chapo appeal to him. He's a great lawyer and a great friend. Naturally, of course, at uh, this was 10 o'clock in the morning or so, his do not disturb was on. I mean, it was 10 o'clock on a weekday. I could understand Mark had other things to do but work. So I sent him some frantic messages that I needed him to appear for Kevin that afternoon. And Kevin is also represented by Mark in an unrelated state gun charge in Westchester. So Mark was really, as I said, the only person who, besides me and people in my office, who could have covered the case. If I hadn't found Mark to stand up for Kevin um, at that afternoon appearance, the court would have assigned an attorney from a pool of lawyers that are just paid by the government to stand up for him. And it was going to be stressful enough for Kevin to have to learn that he was being charged in federal court with a murder, which could potentially get him the death penalty. The last thing I wanted to do was for him not to see a friendly face when he got to court. But Mark answered the phone and all everything was set. And now that one potential disaster was put down, I had to tell his poor mother about the developments, about it being potentially a death penalty case. And as I'm getting ready to call her, I'm afraid it's going to come out online. My plane is boarding. So I run onto the plane. I sat down and the flight attendant and the pilot are doing that talking thing while people are walking onto the plane. And I called Kevin's mother. And this is not an easy call to make, as you can imagine. I didn't know what to say. I mean, I just didn't know. The woman was devastated enough by the fact that her son, who she loves so much, has been sitting in Rikers for a year. I just decided to just tell her. I didn't sugarcoat it. I told her that Kevin was charged with the same murder uh, that we had back in the state case, but now that it was in a federal case and the government could seek the death penalty. If he was convicted, and even if no death penalty was given, it was mandatory life without parole. And Kevin's 19 years old. So that's like, what, 70 years in jail until he dies? For defending himself from an armed, violent gangbanger who initiated a confrontation? I mean... It seems a bit much, no? I also told her I didn't expect him to ever get the death penalty. I wanted to give her this tiny bit of good news if there was any. And I also told her that I expected to win the murder charge federally. I still did. It was the same charge, the same evidence. I hadn't seen, as I said, the evidence of the other charges in the federal case, so I was in no position to tell her what I felt the, the chances were on those. I mean, you don't want to lie to people that are your clients because – when you're discovered to be lying, they lose all faith in you. Even if the truth is ugly and they don't want to hear it, you got to tell them. You don't have a choice. You just got to tell them. You got to tear the Band-Aid off. And I just kept on thinking, imagine being a parent and getting that news. I mean, I have two kids. I can't even imagine if they, when they do bad on a test, I feel bad for them. This is the difference between the way people like us grow up and people like that grow up. They talk about white privilege. I mean, I hate it. I hate it. it's a woke term, but I get it. I get it. And now I'm on a plane going to Buffalo, and I've got an hour drive to Warsaw, New York, and I have to face another mother whose only son is about to get sentenced, and he's going to have to spend another 15 years or so in prison. We get to Buffalo, and of course, the plane is just stuck on the tarmac for like 45 minutes, and that's after taking off 45 minutes late. When we finally get the, the, into the rental car and the GPS tells me that we're going to get to the courthouse five minutes before the sentencing was set to occur. And this was the only flight to Buffalo that morning. So we didn't have a choice. We had to take it. 
On the way to the courthouse, Kevin made his first appearance and Mark handled it and everything went smoothly. So that was a relief. We ended up walking into court in Warsaw, New York, and it was just an excruciating sentencing, just awful. The judge was angry at me before I even started, before I even said a word. He's already yelling at me. He practically spit the sentence out at my client and, and walked off the bench. I reminded him that he had warned the defendant last July during an initial appearance that if he didn't behave in prison, that he would punish him more harshly down the road. I reminded him that he had made the same warning to the defendant the end of November when he took the guilty plea. If you cause any trouble in that prison, you're going to pay for it at sentencing. And in the seven months since that first warning, not only had the defendant had a spotless disciplinary record, but he had also engaged in every program which existed in the prison. And he had gotten glowing reports from prison officials and the people that were in charge of, of those programs. I knew that the judge wasn't going to listen to a thing that I was going to say about the defendant's addictions and how the crimes had only occurred in his life when he was high or either drunk or, or on drugs. And how he hadn't gotten any treatment for his addictions in prison previously. I knew the judge wasn't going to care. Uh, He didn't care during the plea negotiations that he was involved in. So I certainly didn't expect him to care now. And I get, I get it. I understand why. I'm not dumb. So I tried something different. And I told him, you warned the defendant that if he misbehaved in jail, which is not exactly an easy place to avoid getting into trouble, you'd punish him more harshly down the road. Now that seven months have passed and he's got a spotless record, and even more, is lauded for his good behavior and efforts to rehabilitate in jail, shouldn't you do the opposite of the threat that you made and give him a slight break on the sentence? And of course, this argument made total sense. But that's the problem. When you're with a judge who's so close-minded, doesn't want to hear it, so angry, you can embarrass him with that kind of you know common sense. He doesn't care. He's the judge. He gets to make the rules, and he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. And as I said, I presented all of it and said he should get some kind of a break. But as I said, the judge just spat the sentence out and walked off the bench. So he's going to have to do another 15 years. Now, I certainly understand the really justifiable anger about what the defendant did, which landed him in jail. And I feel awful for the victim. I mean, my God, what a horrible thing. And I feel mostly bad for the four-year-old boy that had to witness all of it. I can't even imagine what kind of trouble he's going to have getting older. The behavior was really disgusting. But if you're going to threaten the defendant with more punishment, if he does action A, then you need to reward him for doing the complete opposite of action A. It's hypocrisy not to, and it makes clear that this is no longer a fair judge, but just an angry member of the community with perhaps more power than he should have. Anyway, I rushed back after it was over to make my 630 flight, driving through the snow like a maniac. And my flight was delayed two hours. Got home at 11 o'clock. What a fucking day. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about one of the crosses that I did in El Chapo's case. And when I looked at it, it reminded me a piece of it, a small piece of the cross, about how when you make a cross, when you write a cross, it's not just getting up and asking questions. It's a theme. You're creating a play. A play, like a, a theater for the jury. And you have to shape like this wild tiger that you have to cross-examine. You have to put one of those poles with a, a, a circular loop around his neck and you got to pull him and you got to make him do what you want to. And what I did in that case, again, it's a small piece of cross 
but I think it's, I had forgotten how good it was until I saw it in print. It really is telling. And I think that it is instructive to people that do cross examinations and I never see it happen, but I do it. And I'm going to talk to you next week about it. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, beyondthelegallimit.com. Thanks for listening and keep sending the emails.